talk about the Bible. Okay, honestly, how did hearing that make you feel? Well, whichever of these faces is you, you can't deny that the impact of this book is everywhere. And while it's got some interesting stories, the reason this book is everywhere is that there's a large segment of the population that thinks this book is the Word of God. But what does that mean? How can a book full of violent stories and, let's face it, contradictions, be divine? And again, what does that mean? What exactly does this book do? Is it a book of morals or some kind of spiritual sleeper technology? Well, I'm glad you asked. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life talking about the Bible tonight. As I as I warned, what is it? What do we do with it? Is, is it the, the central core of everything good, or do we need to move on past it as a society? Those are the questions that we're going to dare to try to give you answers on that. My name is Carlos Childs, and I'm the host. And if you want to be part of the conversation, get your questions and comments in as we go, and we'll answer them or talk about them at the end. So if we're going to talk about the Bible, we got to step back a little bit and talk about Revelation in general, why it's here, what's it doing, and that's what we're going to cover in section one. So, if you want to believe Swedenborg, and if you don't, it's going to be a long hour. Actually, hopefully it's fascinating anyway, just from a, what is this kind of perspective. Let's take a look, beginning Secrets of Heaven 3380. This is where he's talking about the need for revelation and the function of it. He asserts, On our own, we know nothing of heavenly and spiritual affairs, so we learn about them from divine revelation, which is the Word. From And then this is from Whitehorse 6, which was a shorter work of his. Again, click these books to download them for free. From earthly light, we know nothing about the Lord, heaven and hell, our life after death, or the divine truths that are essential for our spiritual and eternal life. For this reason, there has been a revelation in every era. What he's saying is we can't through the physical senses, just by looking at things, putting two and two together, learn these uh, essential metaphysical religious truths. You can't know the nature of God, that sort of thing, just by looking around. So there has to be some kind of direct information packet that gets to us and opens that level. And once we have that, we can fill it out with what we know. And he says there's been a revelation in every era. It wasn't always the Bible. The Bible is part of a larger chain. We'll go quickly through the last couple, whatever, hundred thousand years. In the beginning, the most ancient church, as Swedenborg describes it, this was the beginning of the human race. Things, things were much more idyllic. Look how sparkly they are. Why wouldn't they be? This was the phase of direct revelation. This is how you think it would be if there was God, angels, heaven. People could just talk right to heaven. They got dreams. They got direct, direct communication about how things were. And that was cool until we started to 
turn to evil things. And this breaks that communication down. The next phase is what he calls the ancient church, where you had people, things were good, we were a little further distance from heaven, but there was this communication. The revelation was now through correspondences, which is a long word that we go on and on about in the show. Essentially, it means symbolic objects. People could see nature, and from that, they could pick out the meaning uh, of divine things. They knew that a mountain was significant in a certain way, that a tree was. That was sort of the language. It was still pretty direct, but not as direct, and there was some knowledge held over from the earlier phase. Moving on from that, though, we pushed farther away, and you got into ritual. This is a picture of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. This is the time in which there were external rituals that Swedenborg says actually were symbolic of divine things, but sometimes the people doing them didn't even know. They would you, you would get angelic revelation. There's a lot of stories in the Bible about angels telling people things, but it's usually telling people what to do. It's act. It's not an explanation. It's just go do this. Do this, this external thing, move here. Who said, that's how it was, but the human race kept getting worse and worse, and eventually you had to have the time of Jesus Christ. This is the manger scene, but I'm like, whoop, stealing the, stealing the spotlight there. There's a baby behind me. Um, that is when God needed to reconnect, see our episode, uh, why Jesus was born for that. But even after that, things got darker and darker. Swedenborg, by the time he was writing in the mid-1700s, the Christian church, he was so down on it, he thought, you know, this has all just gotten so negative that, and he was told through his spiritual experiences, there needs to be the next phase of revelation, because people had the Bible, but they had taken it, they were using it to do terrible things, Inquisition, uh, that kind of stuff, where they were twisting it completely away from the love that it was supposed to represent. So that's the story. If that seemed weird and fast and you want to stretch it out a bit, this show has got plenty of weird stuff in it. This is the spiritual history of the human race. We did that. That goes through those phases, what they were, what they meant, why focus on those particular aspects of the human race. The point is, you followed the revelation through. You ended up with the Bible uh, in the Christian church, but again, people had messed it up. And you know, this is why at the beginning of this show, I said, we're going to talk about the Bible. And it wasn't like everybody said, yay, this is so great, because it doesn't always you don't always think of, oh, these people like the Bible, I, I feel safe around them, I trust them. Some people are quite nasty that are very into the Bible. Some of the most nasty people are into the Bible. So why? What's up with that? Swedenborg said that we needed, that what, what needed to happen is a new phase in the revelation that's been moving through these, but that this would actually come not by getting rid of the Bible, but by understanding the inner sense of the Bible, the, the true meaning that actually has been contained there all along. And he had a defining vision of this whole thing where he got to see a symbol of the need for this and what was to come. So this is being read from his True Christianity 508. One day there appeared to me a magnificent temple, square in form. The roof was shaped like a crown. It arched upward and was elevated all around. The walls were continuous windows of crystal-clear glass. The door was made of a pearly substance. On the southwest side of the interior, there was a large raised pulpit, on top of which, to the right, the word lay open. Surrounded by a sphere of light so bright that it engulfed the whole raised area of the pulpit and made it shine. In the middle of the temple, there was a sanctuary, with a veil at the front of it that was now lifted up. 
There, an angel guardian made out of gold stood with a sword moving this way and that in its hand. Once I had looked carefully at all of these items, the meaning of each one flowed into my meditation. The meaning of each one flowed in. There's your correspondences. These are objects, but they are symbols. It's almost like they are three-dimensional words for things. And he goes on to meticulously describe what each of those things mean, but we don't have time for that now. Just kidding. That's the point of our show. We have time for it. Let's take a look. He says, he goes through everything. The temple itself, a symbol of the mind, he said this Temple was a symbol of the new church, the church that was to come, which we talked about before, is a symbol of a new mindset, a new era in humanity, not just a religious organization. Next, he said that that doorway is a symbol of our entry into that mindset, into that new church, that new community. He went on to say that the clear windows are the truths that enlighten the mindset of the new church. Also, the stand in the corner, the priesthood and the preaching or the communication of message within that new church was going to shine, communicate these truths better than they had been before. Also, the Word itself, the Bible there glowing, and this is where we start to get into our show, the Word's inner meaning has been revealed, and that this was going to mark the difference. This was where it was really going to start to do something cool. The places for people to sit was the partnership between this church and heaven, that we were going to, through this, through this vision he's having of this thing to come, this thing is going to reestablish that connection between heaven and earth. And the angel there is actually the literal meaning of the word, which uh, meaning the, the Bible, the stories in the Bible, the text of the Bible, not taken symbolically, but just taken in their literal sense, because that is the guardian. And he said the literal sense can be turned this way and that, provided the purpose is to apply it to some truth. The angel is moving its sword. That means you can take these stories, as long as they're pointing towards good, people can have different interpretations of them. But you still have this literal sense um, because it guards the inner sense. Some people say, why didn't God just write it out? Because there needed to be a protection so that people didn't take it and do uh, and make it serve themselves like they did with... Uh, with the uh, external sense. So, he also saw on the top inscribed Nunc Liket, which is translated, now it is allowed, you can see it, it just appeared above the door, that's a famous little quote in, in Swedenborgian circles, um, and it, is, it means now it is permitted to enter with understanding into the mysteries of faith, that one of the hallmarks of this new religious era was going to be that it's not, there's God and He's mysterious, we don't understand, we don't understand how God works on the earth, we don't understand what heaven is like, you can know, and you, it's something that you don't just have to say, well, it doesn't make sense, but I'll believe it, that you can actually learn it and believe it, it's something you don't have to put your thinking, rational human brain to sleep for, this is going to make sense. So that's what the temple was. And then he had this encounter after that with uh, actually uh, an angel who told him a little bit more. So this is again from True Christianity 508. Afterward, I saw someone like a young child overhead holding a piece of paper in his hand. As he came nearer to me, he grew into a person of medium height. He was an angel from the third heaven where all the inhabitants appear from a distance like little children. When he was in my presence, he handed me the piece of paper. 
Because it was written in the curved letters they use in that heaven, however, I handed it back and asked that they express the meaning of the message in words adapted to the ideas in my thinking. He replied, What is written there is this, From now on, explore the mysteries of the word, which was formerly closed up. All of its individual truths are mirrors that reflect the Lord. So, not only are these truths accessible, but all of them tell you something about the Lord, the divine, ultimate reality. This was a pivotal point in Swedenborg's spiritual awakening, and essentially, it was his mission. It became his mission to open up this internal sense of the Word, to give people the, the, the truths that shine behind the literal meaning of the Bible. And before we get into exactly how he did that, or tried to do that, the Bible was something that Swedenborg was already pretty saturated with. I mean, growing up, his father was a Lutheran bishop. He would read the Bible. Swedenborg was very much uh, acquainted with it, and even there's some thought that he had contact with traditions who thought there was an inner sense with it, so it all kind of led up. But once he ha- started having these revelations, or these what we would now call out-of-body experiences or spiritually transformative experiences, he took on a new sense of purpose, partially because of uh, visions like this one, that he's got to explain that sense. And so if you go into any of his books, you know, you're not going to escape biblical quotation. How into the Bible was Swedenborg? Well, I'm going to leave it to an expert to use some technical terms to describe that. I've got into some trouble by saying that Swedenborg was a maniac about the Bible. He really was... uh, just had amazing passion about it. And that is evident because, for example, you see this little book, this is called The Lord by Swedenborg, you can download it for free, it's very small, yet even within this one little volume, you'll find him quote something that's relatively obscure from the Old Testament prophets, in like a number six, and then he'll quote it again ten numbers later, quote it again sixty numbers later, like even one quote, you'll find it many times, even in a little volume like this. He was incessant about quoting the Bible all over the place, and because of that, it is actually tough to translate uh, the whole thing. So Jonathan Rose, who you just saw, is, is heading up the new translation. These, he's the series editor of these new translations, and he had to create a whole tool just to deal with an editing tool, just to deal with the volume of Bible quotes that Swedenborg had. So I'll let him explain a little bit of just how into the Bible Swedenborg is. What I realized was that, so I, I would take a Bible quote, and you can't really tell what's going on. They're kind of cryptic. And so I couldn't really tell what's going on without loading the whole story into my head. And so I'd spend an hour and a half loading the whole story into my head and looking at the Greek and looking at the Hebrew, whatever it is, and Aramaic, and 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 uh, and then looking at this passage in the Latin and, and trying to edit that. But then I'm realizing, wait a minute, just in this tiny little book I'm doing, I'm probably going to see that same passage three or four times. And if I just do them linearly, I'm going to run into that same passage. Three, I'm going to have to reload that into my head three or four times. Wouldn't I save time in this project? We're always trying to accelerate the project. It feels very urgent. Wouldn't it, I save some time if I just edited this once for all times? So I asked a couple of assistants if they could create this thing for me, and they did. We ended up calling it the Massive Bible Passage Editing Tool. Now, this was not for all of Swedenborg's works. This was only for a volume called The Shorter Works of 1758, 
a volume called The Shorter Works of 1763, uh, Ma Revelation Unveiled, which is two volumes in our set, uh, Marriage Love, and also Soul Body uh, Interaction and Survey. So they were basically five volumes, uh, six volumes in the NCE uh, out of 27. So just a, you know, a quarter of his works. And what I asked the people to do was just to take as, as if you poured, as if you had a big bowl and you poured all those volumes in there. And I could list all the titles of them if you want, but you pour those volumes in there and then you run the blender, you frap them for like a good minute and a half and resort them into Bible order. So now every time you run into Isaiah 25.9, you're able to look at every other time that occurs in Isaiah 25.9. Part of what I found was how much of a maniac he is for scripture because just these six volumes, when you put it together, this spreadsheet has 993,482 cells in it. It's almost a million cell spreadsheet for his biblical quotations in just these six volumes. And some of them are not considered that heavily biblical. Some of them are very biblical. That could confuse people who just have been acquainted with Swedenborg's body of teaching and not read too much of the book, the books that he wrote. What, why is he quoting the Bible so much? Because you see the stuff, the, the stuff he described, the teachings he has. There, there's a lot that you can't, doesn't seem like you can find them in the Bible. So why, why does he quote the Bible so much? And the reason is because he, he says everything he got, all this extra stuff actually is in the Bible, but it's hidden away in this internal sense underneath the shell of the words. And we're going to take a look at that internal sense right now in part two. Ironically, nobody knows actually what that word means, so I'm sure I'm using it wrong, but this segment is called Secrets of Heaven. The reason it's called Secrets of Heaven is because Swedenborg named his his largest series, the first thing he was working on, Secrets of Heaven, and the focus of that series was to explain the internal sense of the Bible. You'll see he takes Genesis, he goes through, here's what everything means in the internal sense. We've done shows on that. The ironic part is our first quote here is from a number so far to the back of that that the new translation, which called it Secrets of Heaven, hasn't covered it yet, so it's known by its older Latin title, Arcana Celestia. Are you with me? Let's take a look at it. This is AC 10355. In the writing, and this is starting to describe this internal sense, in the writing of the word, pure correspondences and representatives were used, which are signs of heavenly things. Further from Whitehorse, hardly anyone knows where in the word its divine quality resides when in fact it is in its inner or spiritual meaning. And people nowadays do not even know that this meaning exists. The mystical dimension of the word is precisely that the contents of its inner or spiritual meaning deal with the Lord, the glorification of his human nature, his kingdom, and the church, and not with earthly things that take place in this world. Maybe you've been reading the Bible at some point and thought, why do they take so much time describing how you build an altar, or how you build the tabernacle, or how you construct a temple? Is it really worth that many chapters just on the construction? Swedenborg is saying the holiness of it is because all that symbolizes stuff that actually does matter 
to every human being. This is about God and about humanity, how they connect and how we are supposed to live. And he said that that internal meaning is in the whole Bible, well, sort of. There's actually a list of books that he gives that he says have this internal sense, and they're going to pop up here. Well, look, look, can you tell? Do you know your Bible well enough to know? Did he leave any out? Are they all there? Yeah, he did leave some out. A lot of the New Testament isn't there. He says those are the ones that have a full internal sense. The others in White Horse 16 do not have an inner meaning. The book of Job, though, is an ancient book in which there is, in fact, an inner meaning, but not in an unbroken chain. So Job is like half of a book, but let's look at that unbroken chain. Uh, if you if you want a, a full book of the Bible, it would have to have this meaning that moves from word to word. But to look into that further, this is what he said in Secrets of Heaven 3540. As I said, Job's representational symbolic manner of writing shows it to be a book of the ancient church, which we could spend a whole episode on that, but we'll skip it. But it is not among the books called the Law and the Prophets because it does not have an inner meaning dealing exclusively with the Lord and His kingdom. This is the only criterion for a true book of the Word. So there you go. What's the criterion? It is, let's underline it, have an inner meaning dealing exclusively with the Lord and His kingdom. Okay, are you guys confused yet? Hopefully so. That means I've done my job. We'll kick it back to Dr. Jonathan Rose to explain a little of what's going on with Swedenborg picking certain books of the Bible and not picking others. People talk about the Bible. The Bible is an interesting term. It just means the book from a Greek word, but it has many different books within it, many different authors, many different books written over a period of hundreds, even thousands of years. The Catholic Bible people may have noticed is larger than the Protestant Bible. It has some books in it that are not in the Protestant Bible or are in what are called the Apocrypha in Protestant Bibles. Swedenborg is so bold as to say that there are some books in the Protestant Bible that have a more direct connection with heaven than other books. On the basis of his spiritual experience, he said some of these work in a different way than other books. So early in Swedenborg's corpus of works, meaning when he was uh, in his 50s and 60s, he said, these are the books of the Bible that are what he calls the Word, which was a Lutheran term that was often used, the Word of God and so on. You know, these ones are the Word, and there are other books that are not the Word. What he meant by the Word were actually books that, have, that are written in what he calls pure correspondences. In other words, every single word, every jot and tittle, as they say, has some deeper meaning and some connection with heaven. And he saw from his spiritual perspective that some of the other books in the Bible didn't have that same degree, that didn't have that same direct connection into heaven because of the way they were written. The situation is complicated, though, because when Swedenborg is in his 60s, he says that these are the books of the word and the rest are not the word. But then later on, when he's in his 70s and early 80s, he says that some of those books that weren't the Word, he now calls them the Word. That many, many times he calls them the Word. We don't know. He never wrote about it. He never said, oh, hey, I'm changing my tune here. So we don't know quite why this change occurred. But it creates something of a problem for people who are kind of intensely reading Swedenborg. Because over here he said they're not the Word. And over here he said they are. And the fact that that's a later statement when he says they are, a lot of things, there are some 
points of development in Swedenborg's thought that you can see. And generally, you take a later statement over an earlier one because there's the idea that he was getting more and more clarity as he went along. And yet people have been reluctant to take his later statements that particularly Paul's epistles, the Acts of the Apostles and so on, are the word because he so strongly said earlier on that they aren't. Could the plot get any thicker? We've got some books of the Bible that are the Word, some books that are partially the Word, some books that were the were not the Word and now are the Word, and how does this all shake out? What's he talking about? How's it going to go? Man, I hope this has a good ending. Let's take a look. In a manuscript that was left on his desk at the time that he died, Swedenborg even refers to the Acts and Epistles by a special term, the Apostolic Word, because they're the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles of the Apostles. So he was definitely, according to these works, the term of the Word. Uh, didn't really explain how that is. In an earlier letter in 1766 to Dr. Beyer, he said that these works connect you with heaven, but indirectly, not directly the way the correspondential books do. I think what was going on here is that if you picture the tabernacle, the, the actual structure itself within that grand courtyard, you have an area that's called the holy place, and then you have an area that's called the holy of holies or the most holy place. Christianity in Swedenborg's time as today, especially Protestant Christianity, had felt that the epistles of Paul are the center. They're Manhattan, they're LA, they're downtown scripture. That's the real meat. I've even heard people refer to the gospels or things like the book of Daniel as kind of kiddie literature, but the constitution of Christianity is Paul's epistle to the Romans. Uh, and so people were reading the gospels in the light of the epistles. If they see something in the epistles, then they interpret the Gospels in the light of the epistles. I think overall what Swedenborg was trying to do was to get people to read the epistles in the light of the Gospels, because the Gospels are downtown to him. The book of Revelation, the four Gospels, the Old Testament prophets, those are downtown, and you should resituate the epistles and the acts around that and read them in the light of the Gospels and not the other way around. If you could, even though we've riled everybody up, let's put this book drama behind us for a little bit. That's just, you You got to know that if you're getting into Swedenborg. Really, it's not the focus of the episode. The focus is the nature of the books that Swedenborg says has this internal sense, what they can do for us, what they mean. So let's let's switch gears and look at that. This is in sacred scripture, and he's talking about how it's not commonly agreed that there even is an internal sense. This may be the first time you've heard of it this episode. Earthly-minded people, though, are still not convinced by all this that the Word is divine truth itself, containing both divine wisdom and divine life. They evaluate it by its style, where they do not see wisdom or life. However, the style of the Word is the divine style itself, and no other style, however sublime and excellent it may appear to be, can com be compared with it. That would be like comparing darkness to light. It is characteristic of the Word's style that there is something holy in every statement, even in every word, even at times in the letters themselves. So the Word unites us to the Lord and opens heaven. The Word fills us with good desires that come from love and truths that lead to wisdom, provided we read it with the help of the Lord and not just on our own. 
It fills our will with good desires that come from love and fills our understanding with truths that lead to wisdom. As a result, we gain life by means of the Word. A couple of interesting things. One, he talks about the, the Bible can hook you up. You can do all kinds of amazing things, bring truth and good into you, provided you read it with the Lord and not just on your own. So already it's not just absorbing the text. There is a mindset that matters when you're going into it. But even before that, he says people just see the Bible, the text in the Bible, and they say, what is this? This is, this is not written as well as Shakespeare. The stories aren't as good as the Greek myths. This is not as helpful as the five love languages or whatever modern psychology is finding. How is this divine? And Swedenborg is saying, it looks that way, but if you understand correspondences, you understand this, the symbolism of it, then you see just how valuable it is. So let's look at an example of what that would be. This is Sacred Scripture 81. Time and again, there are paired expressions in the word that seem to be saying the same thing twice. However, they are not mere repetitions. One focuses on what is good and the other on what is true, and their combination makes a union of the two and therefore a single thing. That is actually the basis of the divinity of the word and of its holiness, since in every divine work, goodness is united to truth, and truth is united to goodness. And if you're ever taking a test about Swedenborg, uh, you find yourself in some weird scenario where you have to know a lot about Swedenborg, for every answer, just say goodness and truth. You'll get at least half credit, because there is that pairing, that grand duality, goodness and truth, or as he puts it in other places, love and wisdom, faith and charity. There's these two essential elements in a human being, the will and the understanding in God, divine love, divine wisdom. There is this duality in everything, and Swedenborg says that's why you see all this repetition in the Bible. What repetition? Let's look. I'll show you. It's really there. For example, people and nations appear together 88 times, judgment and justice 14 times. You'll see mountains and hills right by each other 44 times. You'll see sleep and slumber together nine times. Still too many to be by accident. You'll, if you start to look at the Bible with that, those goggles on, you'll notice they, they always say things twice. And is it just because that's a poetic thing, or they just are being really thorough? Swedenborg says, no, half of those those are symbols of things that pertain to the human heart and mind, one of them to the heart, the other to the mind. So it's making intelligent commentary based on the structure of human consciousness, but not just that, the way everything is in the universe. So that's a teeny little sliver of an example of how we could start to peer into saying, even though this doesn't seem as cool as Dr. Seuss, there is something better in there than anything else you could find anywhere. So let's take a look now, if we're going to hype up the book so much, at the book itself in part three. For this, we're going to get a little bit visual. We're really going to, we spent a lot of money on some graphics and we hope they have a high impact here. So let's put them on the screen. Uh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> so here's a little map of the, all the books of the Word, right? Well, from Genesis to Revelation. This this section, we're just going to walk through the actual, the book itself, as Swedenborg describes it, and some of the, the mechanics of how it works. He says there's three different kinds of stuff in there. The first kind is what he calls made-up historical narratives, Genesis 1 to 11. What he says is, 
These are stories that didn't happen. This never happened. Uh, yeah, you can write letters to his Swedenborg friend at Foundation, 320 North Church Street, Westchester. If you're upset by that, he says, Genesis 1-11, to this did not literally happen. However, these stories still have meaning in every detail. He actually has a little thought about why that's written like that. Secrets of Heaven 403, the custom of the earliest people was to express everything through representative images and weave them into a narrative. This custom gave them the greatest pleasure. It seemed to make everything come alive. So not just the people who wrote the Bible, everyone back then was writing, you see this in myths and those sorts of things, everyone was writing in these story forms to give out information. So he's saying that that part was that. For example, you know, we know them well. In Genesis, we're talking about Methuselah living 187 years, and somebody else is living 700 years. This did not actually literally happen. Human bodies can't live that long. And then the, the, this is the, uh, the Noah's Ark story. You can't actually restart species with just two organisms. You couldn't bring everything biologically onto an ark. You couldn't flood. He's saying that these are symbolic stories that, that didn't actually happen. So... Sorry, to the Creation Museum. And then he goes on to say that there's a middle part here that contains historical and prophetic parts. So this is all the rest of the Old Testament, he, and, and he, he talks about them. Let's pull up the next thing. Um, he says that, for example, uh, you have this description of work on the tabernacle here in Exodus. I'll try to get my finger out from behind this, these expensive graphics. Exodus talking about, here's how you build this temple. This would be historical. Then um, you also have uh, the, the reign of a king, and what months was he, and all that. He says that within those details, there is meaning. Next, uh, he says that in the historical... Uh, parts of it, there is meaning, but it's more concealed. Here you have something about Pharaoh taking a ring off his hand, putting it on Joseph's hand. It's telling a story of two guys interacting. Is there really a, a universal symbolic meaning in there? He says yes. It's actually easier to see in the prophetical parts, meaning like Psalms, Daniel, the, the sort of poetic language of that makes it easier to think, okay, this, is, this could be about something more universal. Yet he says both contain it. Okay, next. The, so, but he does maintain that even the historical words have an internal sense, and we put this little asterisk here because he is saying that some of this later stuff here actually happened. And I know there's a like, debate right now, really, about the, archaeologically, is there evidence for it or not? I don't, know, I don't need to get into that right now, but I just wanted to give a nod to it. He says this stuff happened, and it all means everything. It all means something. It's not just an account that the way the words are written, you can actually get in there, learn something about your own mind and how it functions from this obscure stuff about Gideon and the hundred men who were with him. That's what he says, and he spells it out in extreme detail in his series, Secrets of Heaven. Okay, next. The, the New Testament is the same kind of thing. These are the stories of Jesus' life, but beyond just being an example of Jesus being cool and someone to live like, he says that all the details are correspondential. They all mean something. Let's give examples. These will just be little short ones. 
But it says, uh, you know, for example, in this part, he says, very famous, I want to make you fishers of men. He says, fishers of men means that those disciples were to gather people into the church or what they stood for. The fish themselves symbolize knowledge of truth and good. I don't know if you guys on your phones can see these little underlines, but bread symbolized the Lord and love to him. These are just a few little segments taking out. All these stories have universal symbolic meaning in them. And that is the story of how the books are laid out. He describes it in True Christianity 290, where he says, If people were not told what the word is like, none of them could have any idea that there is an infinity in the word's least details, meaning that it contains things beyond number that not even the angels could ever fully draw out. So it's not just that bread means the Lord. There's infinite knowledge in there. Everything in it is comparable to a seed that has the capability of growing out of the ground to become a huge tree, which produces a tremendous number of seeds that are capable in turn of producing similar trees that together make up a whole grove, whose seeds in turn lead to many groves and so on to infinity. So that's pretty big, right? This is the nature of the Lord's Word on a detailed level. It is especially true of the Ten Commandments, because they teach love for God and love for our neighbor. They are a brief synopsis of the entire Word. If you think about angelic wisdom, you can see that the Word has this infinity of spiritual seeds or truths. Since the Word comes from this bottomless depth, in that it is from the Lord, clearly all its parts have a kind of infinity. Something to note, he says Ten Commandments are a summary of the whole Word because they teach us about loving God and loving our neighbor, which if you're just taking the word literally, that's not necessarily what it's about. There's long periods about conquering peoples or building temples or, or these long poems. It's not all seem to be about love, but he's saying the whole internal sense is about love. The beauty and the power of the internal sense, the symbolism is that that outer shell, those stories are containing this thing that is completely about loving each other, love to the whole human race, and it holds the code to unlocking a happy world. And he mentions Ten Commandments have all this stuff within them. We actually did a video about some of the internal sense of the coveting commandments. You guys know the last couple of commandments. He says that that's not just about not taking your neighbor's possessions. There's more to it. So here's a little excerpt from that. Swedenborg says yes. He wrote that even the commandments have a deeper level behind the outer one that applies to everyone at any time. And in this one, as in dreams, your neighbor's house is your neighbor's mind any of our minds. The wife in all of us is our longing to do what's right, that which is close to our heart and which we care about deeply. The servants are our critical thinking skills and problem solving. The servants in our minds. I know I want that. Now those skills can serve to figure out how to get me there. The animals are what's connected to the earth, our physical senses, what we enjoy or find beautiful. So to covet your neighbor's wife is to want to possess someone's sense of right and wrong, to manipulate it to get them to do what you want them to do. To covet the neighbor's servants is to want to control someone's rationality and decision-making, telling them how to think or distorting the facts so that they end up thinking a certain way, all leading to get you what you want. To covet the animals is to know what's appealing to someone and to use that to lead someone to serve you in some way. That's coveting because you want your neighbor's life 
the heart, the mind, the feelings that are supposed to serve them are supposed to lead them to what's happy and higher and free. And you want to take those faculties and make them serve you, to have the processes that are going on inside them, the essence of their lives bent and twisted to get whatever you happen to want, to get you votes or to get you money or to get you to feel strong or to feel adored or to get things done your way, just using people as disposable for your ends. But people's lives aren't yours. They're theirs. There's a special place in the mind that belongs to each person. And don't mess with it unless you're really trying to help them for their sake. But if you're only after your own profit, don't touch that space. Don't scheme about it. Don't think about how you can get in there. Don't long for it. In other words, don't covet what is your neighbor's. Did you cry watching that? That string music, man, I'm telling you. The point is that... That shows a little bit of, that by the way is based on Swedenborg's description of that commandment in Apocalypse Explained. He describes it in a few areas, but I really liked what he said about it there. But it shows you have something in the, the literal sense of the Bible, don't covet your neighbor's ox or his manservant or his maidservant. This is, we don't have oxes anymore, most people don't have servants. What is that? This is talking about something that is relevant to everybody. Everybody can try to manipulate people emotionally, psychologically, or control their freedom, and this is saying, don't do that. So there's a little, again, a sliver of an example, a teeny speck of an example of what there is going on there. So now that we've talked about the internal sense, let's back up a little bit. Why is there a literal sense at all? Why not just say that for the commandments? Wouldn't that make everyone's lives easier? Not necessarily. We'll argue it in part four. It's the internal sense that makes the word special, that makes the Bible special, Swedenborg says. It's only because of this internal sense that actually is the best uh, advice for being a human being, for uh, human beings living together, for connection to God, that you can ever get. And beyond that, it actually does some of the literal connecting work, which we'll look into. But not only that, uh, you have to have a container for it. You have to have a container for that sense, and it's got to be this literal sense. And he describes it, hey, do you want a little bit of confusing Swedenborg terminology? Well, here you go. This is from Sacred Scripture 38. In heaven and in the world, we find sequential arrangement and simultaneous arrangement. In sequential arrangement, one thing replaces and follows another, from the highest to the lowest. In simultaneous arrangement, though, one thing adjoins another from the innermost to the outermost. The sequential arrangement is like a column with steps from top to bottom, while the simultaneous arrangement is like a composite object that forms a series of concentric circles that radiate from its center to its outer surfaces. Next, I need to explain how the sequential arrangement comes to be a simultaneous arrangement on the outermost level. It comes about like this. The highest elements of the sequential arrangement become the innermost elements of the simultaneous arrangement, and the lowest elements of the sequential arrangement become the outermost elements of the simultaneous arrangement. It is as though the column of steps collapsed and became a tightly fitted body on one level. That is how the sequential becomes the simultaneous. And this holds for absolutely everything in the earthly world and absolutely everything in the spiritual world. 
since there is something first, something intermediate, and something last everywhere. And what is first stretches toward its final form, passing through what is intermediate to reach it. Now for the word. What is heavenly, what is spiritual, and what is earthly emanate from the Lord sequentially, and they exist on the last level in a simultaneous arrangement. This means that now the heavenly and spiritual meanings of the word are together within its earthly meaning. Once this is grasped, we can see how the earthly meaning of the word, which is its literal meaning, is the foundation, container, and support of its spiritual and heavenly meanings, and how divine goodness and divine truth are present in their fullness, holiness, and power in the literal meaning of the word. You got to have that literal meaning. And we're going to get to these spiritual senses, the heavenly sense, what they are. But for now, we're going to stay around the text. This is Sacred Scripture 39. We can tell from this that in its literal meaning, the Word is really the Word. There is spirit and life within. The spiritual meaning is its spirit, and the heavenly meaning is its life. This is what the Lord said, The words that I speak to you are spirit and are life. The Lord said His words to the world and said them in their earthly meaning. Apart from the earthly meaning, which is the literal meaning, the spiritual and heavenly meanings are not the Word. Without it, they are like a spirit and life without a body, and like a palace that has no foundation to rest on. This is the microcosm, macrocosm phenomenon where the Word, the Bible, is built just like the human mind that we have to have these three different levels. Like there are three heavens, there are these three parts, of the, it's all part of a whole, even though it seems there's, there's us, these like biological machines, and then there's this book of stories, and how, but it's all connected, it's all part of this system. And that's not to say that we all are going to feel this affinity for the literal sense of the Bible. Some people get a lot out of it, some people probably don't like cracking it open at all, and it can be confusing, Secrets of Heaven 9406. But the more worldly and body-oriented we are, the less we grasp that the world has an internal sense, because we do not allow ourselves to be lifted into spiritual light, and to see from there the nature of the Word, that it is it, it's, that it is earthly in its literal meaning and spiritual in its inner meaning, from the spiritual world or by the light of heaven, it is possible to see what lower levels are like, right down to the lowest, but the reverse is not possible. So from above but not from below, it is possible to see that this is what the word in its letter is like. So it's not always easy to have that inner sense shine through. So if you're reading something and it's not getting to you, don't worry about it. However, it's there. Just like you can not always feel like you have this higher part of you, but you always do. However, that literal sense serves a really important purpose. He describes it, Secrets of Heaven 3690. All Bible stories are the kind of truth that is relatively distant from real divine doctrine. So the literal sense is distant from what it actually means. Still, they serve as a means for gradually introducing children and youths into deeper doctrines about truth and goodness, and eventually the truly divine doctrines, since divinity is at the core of doctrine. When the stories are read by children and touch their innocent hearts, the angels with them experience heavenly delight, being drawn by the Lord to the inner meaning and therefore to the things that the narrative details represent and symbolize. So there you have, we're understanding it literally, at the same time, simultaneously angels are understanding it 
spiritually as they as we read the heavenly delight of the angels is what flows into the children and gives them pleasure the whole point of putting stories in the word was to bring about this first stage the childish and childish and youthful stage of people who are to be reborn that is why the stories were written in such a way that absolutely everything in them would contain something divine so not just kids but as we begin our journey it's easier for us to grasp stories. So that's one part. There's much more to it. But before we have too much theory, let's let's show an example. This is the the literal sense containing a spiritual sense. This is a, from a series we did called Swedenborg Minute, where we describe the internal sense of this prophecy about Egypt, Israel, and Assyria becoming one. On the external sense, it sort of seems like um, about countries and roads and geography, but on the internal sense, it's about something in the heart and mind. So here's what we're talking about. Okay, here it is. What you're looking at is the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. Meh. I mean, it's a nice road, but shouldn't the fulfillment of a prophecy be something grand and uplifting that helps the whole human race? Enter Swedenborg. He says that this prophecy isn't about transportation between a few little countries. It's about every single person's spiritual development and the future of science and spirituality. Egypt, as an ancient center for learning, is a symbol for accumulated factual knowledge. Assyria, a trade hub, is our capacity for reasoning and exchanging ideas. And Israel, where God spent time, is spirituality. So reread, the prophecy is that scholarly study, rationality, and spirituality are going to become one. As we shed some of the misguided religious thinking of the past, these three won't be at war. What we learn about the physical world will actually enhance our understanding of the pursuit of spiritual growth, and vice versa. No more clashing in legislation and policy on YouTube comment sections. Everyone moving forward together. A bit more exciting than just another road, right? There you go from temporal, obscure, you know, Assyria, when, when was the last time you went there? Uh, and does it really matter if there's a road from one country to another? To, no, to, to have scholarly study, science and religion getting along, and not, not religion trying to squash science, not squa- science trying to abolish religion, but to have them actually benefiting from each other, that could be a very cool future. And that's something that it, even within the own, your own mind, your rational thinking mind and your soul or the part of you that can sense something deeper, those not being at odds with each other, that's the prophecy. You see how that becomes, it's like holographic. Now, everybody can get a part of that. It's not just something for one part of the world at one period of time. That's the jump from the literal sense to the spiritual sense, but you need that literal sense to hold those words. You can't, you can't just have it be the the internal sense on its own there's a lot of reasons it could be subject to um profanation as swedenborg calls it where you take it you twist it to mean something else also it wouldn't be held together and you wouldn't have the the lower plane that we can learn from to kind of imbue us with this stuff going up but it's not all about the literal sense in the afterlife we don't read that sense anymore we have something different something more vibrant and something more alive and we're going to talk about it in section five we 
going to begin this section in a relatively obscure book of Swedenborg's, which I guess is saying something since all his stuff is pretty obscure to most of the world. This is obscure within obscure. Uh, it's called The Word, or De Verbo, and it appears in a couple of places, but we're actually only going to stay in number 14 from it because he gets at something that's very, very apropos for our show. This is from The Lord, or The Word 14. The Word exists in all the heavens. So it's not just here on earth, in heaven, and it is read there and preached from as in the Word. So if you thought you could escape preaching in heaven, sorry. For it is the divine truth from which angels have their intelligence and wisdom. Indeed, without the Word, no one would know anything about the Lord, about love and faith, redemption, or any of the other secrets of heavenly wisdom. So that revelation thing we're talking about, you need that in heaven as well. In fact, without the Word, there would not be a heaven. Just as in the world there would not be a church without the Word, thus there would be no conjunction with the Lord. We have already shown above that an earthly theology is not possible apart from revelation, and in the Christian world apart from the Word. If an earthly theology is not possible in the world, neither would it be possible for anyone after death, since every person on becoming a spirit after death is in the same condition with respect to religion as he was with respect to his religion in the world. Nor does heaven consist of any class of angels created before the world or together with the world, but it consists entirely of people who are once people in the world and who inwardly then become angels. These come by means of the word in heaven into spiritual wisdom, which is an interior wisdom because the word there is spiritual. So if we made people upset enough in the beginning by saying that the Genesis, the first chapters didn't happen, we're also going to say that angels are not a separately created race, that they are people, ex-people who have evolved further and learned to be more loving people. Send your letters to Swedenborg Foundation or Swedenborg.com. And he says there that the same process that happens on, in this level, it's not just that there's here and then there's heaven, everything's different. We learn from revelation in this word, this world, and they learn from revelation in their world. So the question is, are they reading the same book as we are. It sounds like it. Do they have the same chapters? Everybody there is studying about Abraham, that kind of thing. Let's go back into 14. The word in the Lord's spiritual kingdom is not the same as the word in the world. There you go. The word in the world is earthly, while in the spiritual kingdom it is spiritual. The difference is like that between the word's earthly meaning and its spiritual meaning. The difference is such that not one expression is the same. Instead of names, the word in the spiritual kingdom has concepts, so too in place of numbers, and instead of historical narratives, it contains matters having to do with the church. But surprisingly, when an angel reads the word, he does not know that it is not the same as the word he read in the world. The reason is that he no longer possesses any earthly ideas, but spiritual ideas in their stead. And earthly things and spiritual things by correspondence are so joined that in a way, they constitute one and the same thing. So you have this word that doesn't have people, places, and historical narratives. It has these direct concepts, these direct truths, but because they are the internal sense of this external self, if we understood the Bible literally while we were here, when you get there, you don't almost don't realize you're reading a whole new thing with new stories because the, the meaning on a, the deepest level communicates so that your spirit recognizes, oh, this is what was within that stuff this whole time. There's more, there's actually not just a spiritual level to the Word, there's a celestial or heavenly level, and for that, that's above my pay grade, so we've got a translator 
talking about the differences there. In keeping with Swedenborg's sort of grand duality throughout his works, he says that there is a word in the Lord's spiritual kingdom or spiritual heaven, and there's a word in the Lord's heavenly kingdom or celestial heaven. He says that the spiritual word has to do with thoughts of the intellect, and the heavenly celestial word has to do with affections in the will. Because angels in the spiritual kingdom are about faith in the Lord and perception of truth, whereas angels in the celestial heavenly kingdom are about love to the Lord and affection for good. He says that they have different kinds of writing. He says that in the spiritual world, the letters are like our printed letters in, the, in our world, that each one has a meaning and we cannot understand them. We in this world cannot understand them. In the celestial word, he says, the letters are not even known in our world. In the spiritual world, there's no spaces between the letters. There's dashes and dots above and below. In the celestial word, the letters are curved with little serifs. There's marks and dots within the letters as well as above and below the letters. About the spiritual world, he says, that the wiser the angels are, the deeper the secrets they can see in that script. About the celestial word, he says that that script expresses affections of love and that the secrets there are deeper than the angels can even put words to. Lastly, he says that there is hidden wisdom in the spiritual word, but in the celestial word, there's a thousand times as much hidden wisdom. That's classic Swedenborg. I'm going to tell you about these lofty things, but give you weird detail, weird specifics. Like the in the spiritual word, the letters are inter they're like cursive, interconnected with dots above and below. But in the celestial world, they're rounded with little seraphs and that kind of stuff. That's what you paid for. That's what you get, man. And he says that the word there is is more than just a book, or it has more uh, more special abilities than just a book. There, he talks about people having copies of it. And it glowing, you know, like you saw in that vision. But also, he said, even the text from it is powerful. So, so let's say I had a piece of paper here, and I wrote something from the word on it. Oops. All right, so I've got it here, and then if I uh, if I just lifted it up, it would actually shine. He says that it the the text itself shines because the, that's light is truth in the spiritual world, and. Uh, and so you have this direct, if there's truth on something, light comes out of it. But he goes, he describes a lot more about how you can make shapes with the light out of it. It's got this whole sort of magical quality to it there. So it's going to be even upgraded to the experience that we've got now. After that, coming in, we have an important segment here, but unfortunately, you're going to have to read five things in a row if you can handle that. All right, can we do it? Let's do it. Come on, stretch. Drink some water, do what you need to do, five things, starting our last time into the word 14. The earthly word as it exists in this world among Christians contains within it both a spiritual word and a celestial word, which we just learned. For the spiritual meaning of the word is the word in the heavens that make up the Lord's spiritual kingdom, and the celestial meaning of our word, its inmost meaning, is the word in the heavens that make up the Lord's celestial kingdom like we're saying, the different levels. Therefore, our earthly world con word contains both the spiritual word and the celestial word, but the spiritual and celestial words do not contain the earthly word. 
Consequently, here's the point of this whole thing. The word in our word world, <laughs> that's so hard to do. The word in our world is the most full of divine wisdom, and so is holier than the words in the heavens, which I didn't see that coming. You'd think, oh, the celestial, the highest word, that is actually this one we have here with the strange stories that, that seems like it's not writ well written and repeats things. Because that is the full picture, it has the meanings within, that is actually the most holy of them all. All right, Sacred Scripture 63. We made through one. Here's our second reading. The reason we have companionship with angels of heaven through the literal meaning is that within the literal meaning, there are spiritual and heavenly levels of meaning, and those levels are the ones on which angels are focused. Angels of the spiritual kingdom focused on the spiritual meaning of the word, and angels of the heavenly kingdom focused on the heavenly meaning. These meanings unfold from the earthly meaning of the word, which is a literal meaning. When anyone who has become truly human is absorbed in it, the unfolding is instantaneous. So the companionship is as well, meaning when we interact with the literal sense of the word, you're instantly in the presence of angels because they are interacting with these higher senses. And I think we'll get to Swedenborg actually describes reading and having an effect spirits in certain ways. All right, two of five. Let's keep going. Hopefully it's interesting. Sacred Scripture 113. I have been granted, oh yeah, here, here he goes. I've been granted an abundance of experience that has taught me that there is a communication with heaven for us through the word. When I was reading through the word from the first chapter of Isaiah to the last of Malachi and the Psalms of David, I was given a clear sense that every verse communicated with a specific community of heaven, and that in this way the whole word communicated with the entire heaven. Here we start to move into this being more than just a book of, of morals or instructions, that this is a spiritual technology, that throughout the Word, all communities of heaven have some kind of link with a particular part of it. So as you read, you're kind of taking a spiritual tour of heaven, and that we have this connection. And if I do find with people, some people, a particular part of the text of the Bible, will be moving to them. Maybe the rest isn't, but some line, um, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Like, I like that one. Something like that, you feel this connection with it. That could be because that's connecting you to a community in heaven that is close to your heart, that, that resonates with something deep in your soul. So, is even apart from us learning any intellectual facts from it or, or lessons or, or stuff based on the narrative, there is a connection with this. Essentially, it's, it's like a, a radio or something like that that, that is, allows signals to travel. All right, we're almost home free. Sacred Scripture 68. Another reason our companionship with angels is, is established through the earthly or literal meaning of the word is that by virtue of creation, each of us has three levels of life heavenly, spiritual, and earthly. I was talking about this before. As long as we are in this world, we are focused on the earthly level. Then on the spiritual level, to the extent that we are intent on genuine truths, and then on the heavenly level, to the extent that we are devoted to living by these truths. So that could, The highest is that you know what the truth is and you live by it. We do not, however, gain full access to that spiritual or heavenly level until after death. But there is more on this elsewhere. And there really is. You see these books up here. Download them. Read more if you want to get deeper into it. Okay, you did it. We made it to our final quote here. This is Secrets of Heaven 1143. The inner meaning gives the Lord's word life. 
That meaning is like a soul whose body is the superficial sense. The case resembles that with human beings. When our body dies, when we join the angels, our soul comes alive. And when our soul lives, we no longer know anything of bodily affairs. By the same token, we no longer know what the literal meaning of the word is, only what its soul is. So you see the soul of the revelation, too. As you can see the spiritual world, you see the spirit of the revelation, too, where it is exactly what you'd hope it would be. It's love and it's truth, and it's powerful, and it does things. And we get there, and we can provide ourselves with a foundation by working with the text. In this world, let's look a little more deeply into that. How do we get this sort of enlightenment? That's the last section. So how do we connect with this truth? in the word it let's say we've sold you up to this point this is cool we like uh i like what you're saying here it's got all these levels connects you with heaven worth 10 minutes a day of my time how do we do it what's the best way to get there this is arcana celestia which is secrets of heaven way up high 10659 those who acknowledge the lord and love to lead a life in keeping with his commandments are the ones who are enlightened when they read the word and who have an understanding of it not those who say they believe and do not lead such a life have you ever run into somebody like that for the lord flows into a person's life and from this into his belief but not into a person's belief separate from his life so compartmentalization is not the way if you really if you know something is the right thing to do or you really have a belief that has implications you got to go for it of course those have got to be good it's got to be a belief of love or else you're turned around in the wrong direction anyway living by falsities doesn't help nobody. Our back to the high arcana celestia. This is ten three five five. True revelation comes to those who love truth for its own sake, not to those who love truth with a view to acquiring important positions and monetary gain. So you know, if you, like a corrupt televangelist or something. For if you are willing to believe it, the Lord is the Word itself, because the Word is divine truth, and divine truth, since it comes from the Lord, is the Lord as He exists in heaven. So that not only is it a useful tool, it actually is God. Consequently, those who love divine truth for its own sake love the Lord. And with those who love the Lord, heaven flows in and brings enlightenment. But those who love divine truth with a view to acquire to acquiring important positions and monetary gain turn away from these from the Lord towards self and the world. With these there is no influx or enlightenment is possible. With these, therefore, no influx or enlightenment is possible. Okay? So you gotta live it. You gotta be genuine, and you can't you can't skirt it. You can't just put in your quota, read X amount of the Bible a day, then go and be a mean person. It doesn't it doesn't match up. Doesn't do any good for anybody. But the question is, we've been so Bible focused this episode. There's a large percentage of the world that doesn't read the Bible. Doesn't some people in the world have never even heard of it? So let's bring up a couple of check boxes here. To connect with this inner truth that Swedenborg is talking about, first of all, do you have to have read Swedenborg and have learned about this inner truth through him, since there's not too many other places that are talking about this specific internal sense of the word? Let's see what Swedenborg himself has to say about it. This is Whitehorse 10. 
People who have been regenerated, too, are effectively engaged with the word's inner meaning, even though they do not realize it. Since their inner self is open, and this self has spiritual perception, after death they come into that meaning spontaneously and are no longer engaged with a literal meaning. So, so the answer is no. Even if you don't know about the literal meaning, if you're living a regenerated life, which means a life of love and truth, then you are connected to it without realizing it, and in the other life, you're native to it already, even if you didn't have it there. So, but that begs the question, okay, do you have to be a Bible reader? Do you have to be Christian to connect to this inner truth? Let's take a look, Secrets of Heaven, 2590. In His mercy, the Lord accepts and saves anyone anywhere on the globe who has lived a good life, because goodness itself is what accepts truth. A good life is the actual soil in which seed or truth is planted. An evil life positively does not accept the seed. So, no big surprise. No, you don't. That a good life, a life of seeing there are other people, I know what it is to treat them honestly, I know what it is to treat them fairly, to respect them, I'm going to try to do that, even if it's hard to do that. That is the ground that accepts the truth. Actually, Swedenborg often spoke about people who were full of the Bible and Christian doctrine, who that actually cluttered their mind up because they were living an evil life, they rejected the truth in the afterlife. But if you have this love, no matter what your your ideas or beliefs were, if you have love, you connect to this higher truth easily in the next life, because good and truth are magnetized together. In short, if we had to give you a little to-live-by uh, sticker for your fridge, this would be it. This is from White Horse 7. We are enlightened if we are committed to living good lives and therefore are affected by what is true. You want to be good, and because of that, the truth, you feel, oh, that's good. And when you learn something that you think, this is true, this is good, you go out and do it, you're in good shape. So that's the core of it. The rest is details, but hopefully they were interesting details, and hopefully you enjoyed the program tonight. If so, like and subscribe. As always, that helps us out on YouTube, helps other people find us, and if you want to support programming like this, please consider a donation to the nonprofit Swedenborg Foundation, and that will help us continue to bring you things like the letters in the spiritual and celestial words and how they operate. So there's that. We're going to get to your questions and comments now. We'll take a quick video break, and then we're doing it. we're going to do it. We're seriously going to do it. It's for real. We're going to look at what other people are thinking about this whole download of information and how it strikes them, and let me add and subtract to it. So let's take a look at our very first question now. Vovi, or Vavi, after ES had access to the spiritual realm, did his hard times or difficult life lessons stop? Oh, that's a great question. So after Swedenborg had access to the spiritual realm, did, did things go well? Like he, he didn't need these, these lessons or anything difficult to teach him. Certainly not initially. Um, he, the beginning of his entry into the spiritual world was very, very rocky. You can check out his Journal of Dreams. Uh, he describes all kinds of hard experiences there, uh, stuff that's scary and, and uh, exposes his flaws 
and makes him face things in himself. That was all over, especially in the beginning. From there on out, you 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 do seem to sense that he entered a period of calm. I mean, when he was having his revelatory phase, where he was writing all kinds of stuff, like the books we're reading now, he was always being harassed spiritually by evil spirits. He talked about it all the time, but there seemed to be a level of protection where he wasn't really bothered by it. He knew enough of the truth that he seemed to be okay. He was often writing about being protected, although there may have been disturbing stuff in there. On the physical level, all kinds of bad stuff was I mean, people were, he put these books out, people were going after him, they were calling him crazy, they were trying to get him kicked out of Sweden, they were trying to get him indicted for spreading this stuff, people were trying to kill him, all kinds of stuff. Whether or not that bothered him with his new suite of knowledge, I don't know. So it doesn't seem that they stopped. It does, certain things did seem to go well, there's like anecdotes about how people would be glad when Swedenborg came on a boat with them, because he had to, back in those days, he had to travel long distances, because they said he always gets a good wind going with him. So I don't know whether stuff like that is accurate, but he, there was some level of calm that he reached, but certainly the beginning period was rocky, and the external level didn't all go easily for him. So we can all look forward to, even if we get to there, still having some stuff that's a, that's a pain in the neck. Good question. I liked it. Okay, next one. Banjo 234, didn't Jesus condemn the Pharisees because they rewrote many of the Old Testament stories, making God, Yahweh, a supremacist, racist God that demanded Jewish hegemony over nations rather than love for all? Jesus certainly condemned the Pharisees and for twisting the the religious impulse and for, he says, you know, you made my temple a den, den of thieves. I don't know if of a reference of them rewriting the Old Testament stories. Um, I know that he was mad for them selling things and how they were interpreting the law. They did argue about the points of doctrine. They said, keep the Sabbath, and he said, if somebody falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, can you help them? That's not what it's about. So he certainly was odds with them there. There's actually an interesting Swedenborg, Swedenborgian uh, explanation for why there are all these repugnant things in there, which is the symbolism that actually stories that seem to be advocating this stuff on the inner meaning are advocating regeneration, love for all humankind. We've gotten into that a little bit. Check out our, um, let's see, probably uh, the... Modern Cain and Abel might be the closest. We want to do one about the Tower of Babel soon. That might clear that up. So that Swedenborg says those stories are supposed to be in there with these things that make it look bad because on the in, th- those are symbols holding a better internal sense. So there's my answer to that, but it's a good question. Okay, next one. Megan, so if one keeps reading the Bible, will God help open our hearts to the deeper and more real meaning? That's what Swedenborg seems to be saying, that if you approach it with the right attitude, meaning you're not, we had that whole tangent at the end about don't do it for gain, financial gain, out of spite, uh, thinking about yourself. If you come at it from, I want this to do something good for, for me and for the human race so I can help people, so I can really learn what does God want, that, that you will get more and more into it. I, you know, I've been going, I've been trying to do that. I'm not going to say that it's, it's easy and that it progresses linearly, like you're always going to open the Bible and feel great about reading it. There are times when, because I've got some correspondences, not basic knowledge in my head, when I can see, 
oh, I think I know what that means, even the part Swedenborg doesn't describe. It can feel really cool. There's other times you open it up and it's like, this is not speaking to me. This is this does not feel like this is not comforting. So for me, it seems like it's not automatic. It's not, it doesn't always go up, up, up. But there is some kind of progression, and Swedenborg seems to be saying if we approach it from the right mindset, yeah, that connection will happen more and more. So good question. Let's take a look at another one. Lisa, did Emanuel Swedenborg ever meet anyone who claimed they were Satan? Yes, he met a lot of people. Even though he said that there is no... See our episode called Is the Devil Real? where he says that there's actually not any supernatural evil being that's a counterpoint to God. There are a lot of really evil beings, but they are people who have turned bad, and they there's no one ruler who has who lives from himself, you know. Um, but a lot of people in hell think that they're Satan or say that they're Satan in order to to gain power, deceive people. You'll find a lot of people in the afterlife who believe in Satan. Um, and on the flip side, you get a lot of uh, people saying that they're Jesus Christ in the afterlife as well. So, yes, he did meet people saying they were the devil. Okay, next one. Jacob A. Will God rapture people when Earth's life is over? According to Swedenborg, it's it's not going to happen like that. I mean, there's a Christian idea that there's going to be a literal event on this planet where God takes people en masse, and some people are left behind, and there's all kinds of stuff. But Swedenborg reads the book of Revelation in this same correspondential sense, that that final judgment, that that pulling up is actually in each one of our lives. That's our own movement into the spiritual world, uh, and that is going to be the transition. It's not going to be... The earth is not going to go. God's not trying to destroy it. It's a good place for people to live. It's, it's an important function. It's going to continue to support the human race. Actually, it's a something inside of each of us uh, and we, we want to do something about the book of Revelation coming up soon, but there's my thought on that. Let's do one more. True You Voice. What would Swedenborg think about GMOs, vaccines, toxins, and the state of the environment in our corresponding health today? Well, I don't know for sure. I do know that the point uh, is to have a healthy body so that you can have a healthy mind, and a healthy mind so you can serve the human race. So anything that's harming the body... There's a lot, there's certainly some debate about some of these, are they good, are they bad? Um, uh, But if they are harmful, yeah, the point of the human body is to foster the growth of the spirit and let it grow. So anything that's hampering that is problematic. And also the harmful things in the environment have probably correspondences on a spiritual level to evils and falsities uh, and how those affect the human spirit. So I would say... What he would say is, you know, you want good and truth. Learn what is actually harmful, what is not harmful, and the things that are harmful, get those out. And the people that are putting harmful things out there for financial gain, don't do it. It's a misuse of, uh, it's a misuse of your possessions of power. You should be in positions of power to help the common good. Swedenborg was big on the common good. So anything that degrades the common good is not heavenly. Anything that raises up the common good is heavenly. So that's what I'm going to say. Let's all be part of that heavenly common good raising together. That will be fun. Hopefully you'll be back with us next week. On Monday, we're going to look at soulmates or marriage love, and is there that in the afterlife? Get into Swedenborg's uh, discussion on his experiences surrounding that. I hope you'll join us. See you then.